The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. In a few years, people will probably be looking back and think it was absolutely bananas how many people had cars and how little they use them. If you think about it, having an asset that you use less than an hour a day, yet where you are responsible for every bit of depreciation, servicing, insurance, risk and upkeep, well, it doesn't seem like the brightest model. And as cities begin to price in all the free space cars are given in the form of road parking, as automation advances and as urban density increases, the days of every family having two cars are looking pretty much numbered. But the thing is, cars can be really handy. And although you may not be best to own one, having access to one can be a real win. So around the world, car share services and car on demand services are springing up. And in Wellington, New Zealand, a particularly interesting homegrown one is in operation. Mevo allows users to open an app, find a nearby plug-in hybrid Audi, unlock it with their phone, hire it by the hour, and then when finished, park it in any metered park in most of Wellington Central, so long as it's run by the council, and then you just walk away. It's the convenience of a Lime scooter, except sanctioned by councils, and cutting down road clutter instead of adding to it. The idea has launched with some impressive backers. On the board, and with investment from Z and Audi NZ, and with a novel carbon-positive approach to offsetting emissions, where they sequester 120% of what you make and into rainforests that will actually retain the carbon. It's a very cool idea, with thousands of users, many ditching their cars, and it's becoming part of the transport mix in Wellington. To talk the journey, where it could go from here, and what transport might look into the future, CEO Eric Seidervelt joins me now. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, thanks so much for being here. First up, let's go back a few steps into your journey uh, into setting up this business with purpose. Because it isn't your first uh, role in this space, is it? Tell me about that. Yeah, no, I actually, uh, that was that was the goal, was to get in and, and be a, a change maker, whatever that means. Um, and so it's been of a, a topsy-turvy journey to get here. But um started out just saying, well, how can we how can we rebuild this uh, this world we live in? Because a lot of it needs to be in our generation, and um, kind of went through in terms of Mevo, went through this uh, fairly, I don't know, maybe a little bit calculated path, and we went well. Most people live in cities, and that's just going to keep going um, and getting more and more. And then we're like, okay, well, most impact is tied to 
a dollar spent here or there. And we're like, okay, well, where do people spend their dollars? And it's housing and transport and food. And we went, well, housing turns over about once every 100 years. Transport turns over about once every 20 years. So we're like, well, that looks like a pretty logical place to start, especially, like as you say, the assets are used 94% of the time. But winding back even before that, I went, well, who is making change in the world? Where, where, are these, where are these organizations and what does that look like? And so I studied urbanism because I figured cities were a good place to start and um, did some research straight out of uni and uh, was really lucky because I got a scholarship from Wellington City Council and, uh, and University of Victoria as well. Um, and with that, I looked into cities and, and nature and how we put that together and wrote a really nice paper. I was really stoked with it. I had an amazing supervisor. Um, and it, I think it pretty much sat on the shelf. <laughs> Maybe a few people read it, which was nice. But I thought, well, that's cool. And I really enjoyed that. And I think I made some impact, but wasn't quite tangible enough for me. Um, and so the next, next thing I got into uh, was a pretty amazing organization, the um, QE2 National Trust, which sets up conservation on private lands around, around the country um, and protects them in perpetuity. But private landowners look after them. And so that was a charity enacted by, um, by Parliament. Really interesting space, small. Um, and we got to, I was a very junior and small part of the team, um, but put aside an area of land about, about the size of Greater Auckland um, in between Queenstown and Wanaka. And so that's protected. It's, it's effectively a, a national park forever, which is, it was cool. But charity's tough. It's hierarchical and there's, there's, you know, shortage of capital and pretty competitive as well in a strange sort of way. And so I went, hmm, this is, this is a really good learning experience, but, but not, not really for me. What, what other sectors are there? And um, I tried research and I tried charity. And I, for whatever reason, government hasn't been been my forte. Um, and so kind of started looking for for business roles. That's, and the QE2 Trust especially, um, so many people think that there's this thing called the Queen's Chain and think that there's all of these kind of protections. But actually when you look into it, it's so much of it relies on kind of the kindness of individuals and kind of random little things kind of cobbled together. It, it's such an interesting space to everyone thinks you have so much power and yet there's so little of it actually going on. Yeah, well, there's a, the QE2 Trust in New Zealand, and, and I'm not certainly a spokesperson for them by any stretch of the imagination, um, is a really unique and kind of awesome version of what happens. But it's not the same as in the UK or, or other places. It's private landowners who continue to own the land um, and continue to take care of it. So there's these unsung heroes throughout the country who who just have these beautiful parts of their their property that they constantly look after and take care of and that's part of our identity as a country you know that's part of our biodiversity cultural heritage landscape values that we we all enjoy so it's one of these little things that sits next to our, our national parks which are incredible and so having had these experiences in kind of uh, the intersection between urbanism and conservation and land and cities, what led you overseas and into business? Well, I looked at the economy and I thought, well, the economy is effectively a 
you know, it's a proxy for our, our world, a, a good one or a bad one. You can argue both ways, and people certainly like to. But I realize business moves really fast. There's a lot of investment. Um, and, you know, if you think about our, our country today, what keeps it running? We've got government, certainly a, a very important part. And then we've got these big industries, right? We've got uh, FMCG, so supermarkets, fast-moving consumable goods, um, telcos, the Sparks and Vodafones of the world, banks, energy companies, certainly, you know, fuel retailers like Zed. Those are, those are the backbones of, or the backbone of our, our country. And so being able to make change on that sort of scale is really appealing. Um, and in terms of getting into that, I found a really incredible role um, after QE2 working in corporate strategy because I thought, well, the person writing the strategy is probably quite likely to have, you know, a pretty enjoyable part of the impact. Tell me about the Bamboo Initiative. Yeah, so the uh, Bamboo is a conscious travel company that I, I work for. Um, originally, it came from a, an organization called Global Volunteer Network, which um, had been operating out of New Zealand for 14 years. And one of these quiet, un another unsung hero, but on a global stage, um, Colin, the founder, is a, a mentor and really good friend of mine. Um, projects all over the world, but the volunteer space and the travel space has just changed over 14 years. So Colin and I put our heads together and worked on just radically pivoting the business. Um, and we looked at effectively North American, English, Canadian, European, uh, university students, and two-week travel. So think Kentucky, right? And we all have our <laughs> different opinions on that, and a lot of people have been on great trips like that. But there's these communities that they pass through, and more and more in developing countries, you know, or partially developed countries, like places like Thailand and Cambodia. Those can have good or bad impacts. And what we said is actually the tide is, the tide is moving on how people want to interact when they travel. And so we said don't they want to give back? And we kind of coined this term, uh, give backpackers. So it's backpacking, but you're, you're actually contributing to the community. Um, and we set up these two-week tours where there were about four or five days of the two weeks, which is volunteering. Now, there's all the, the challenges around um, effectively the negative impacts of tourism and even like do-gooders who are out and actually having more negative impact than positive. So we weren't trying to go into places that were uncharted. I mean, we're talking about places that are pretty already impacted. So Kosamui is an example. Like, tourism is there. It's happening, whether you like it or not. Um, and we said, well, in these places that already have the impact, why don't we funnel people's time and energy and, to be perfectly frank, money as well, into these communities? So schools and, and wells and you know, safe drinking water and education and all, all sorts of development projects that people coming from North America or Europe get to be involved in. But also for each day that they're there, there's substantial investment into local local development projects. Um, and they take those experiences back. That, that's quite a flip on where the volunteer model was, wasn't it? And that you had to kind of basically join a big organisation and then do a big time commitment and it was very regimented and not as kind of bite-sized or able to actually fit into a holiday period that most people might have in their study or jobs. And also maybe that's not as um, uh, forgiving of the idea that you might want to go to the beach around it. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the market had just moved on, and the world had moved on. And, um, you know, Colin and I were back and forth to Bangkok every two weeks, and don't worry, we offset our carbon. Um, But we worked with um, the team who set up the original bamboo in, in Bangkok. Um, and it was it was amazing. We we delivered a 10x revenue increase in 18 months. We sat down. We, we were like, well, we need to – we could do 10% increase in revenue over the next little bit, which would have been a – you know, any any business that, that's established and does that in a year, that's a good year. And we thought, well, it's probably about the same amount of work to just redesign everything. And so we put our heads down and got it done. Yeah. I love that idea of uh, give back backers because so many backpacking stories are like, oh, and I ran out of money and all the local community basically fed me for a month. And you're like, well, that seems like international <laughs> bludging. <laughs> it's quite nice to actually leave things a bit better rather than, yeah, go give no money. It's pretty cool when you see, you know, young kids who can speak three different languages because there's just always someone to talk to. And you know that the impacts of tourism would be there regardless. So, you're well the impacts of someone going and teaching is pretty cool. So that's so cool. So being part of that journey, and I love those stories of, you, you know, the, the things that lead into the starting of, of businesses, is what you've done with, with Mevo uh, is, is such an interesting thing. Explain for me kind of a little bit about, like, how you came to have that idea and, and yeah, why, why you headed back to Wellington to try and make it happen. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean... There was another project right in between as well. So Colin and I worked on a uh, – we co-founded a distributed energy company in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia looking at there's a billion people on earth without energy. And so we were going, well, you know, in, in slums or, or um, informal settlements as they're more commonly known. And we looked at distributed energy being battery, storage, solar and, and lighting. And that was that was a really – big piece of learning. We got a couple of villages set up and a couple thousand families with energy who didn't have them um, and ended up spinning that project down. But that also was a lot of the initial conceptual um, feed into Mevo. And we saw car sharing happening around the world. And we thought, well, this whole business of cars sitting around 96% of the time and being, you know, by weighted average, the largest purchase people make compared to how much they use or by total the second largest purchase traditionally. That just doesn't make sense, especially with urbanization happening as it is. So, you know, 50% of the world today and by, I think it's 70% by 2050. Um, and we saw these these companies spinning up globally. I mean, today Vancouver has over 5,000 uh, free-floating pickup, drop-off wherever, car share vehicles, Madrid, thousands, you know, Copenhagen is going... Berlin is, I think, almost over 10,000 now. Massive numbers. And kind of similar vein to what we see out of Wellington a fair bit. You know, 42 Below and other companies see things happening internationally. They're certainly not the only vodka company in the world, but they go, oh, we can do that. And actually, we're going to do it really well. We're going to do the, you know, at least, hey, put put our hands in and try and make the best one in the world. That's kind of seems to be the way Wellington does that. So, um... Yeah, we, Finn and I, my co-founder, um, Finn Lawrence, we'd both lived internationally and, and traveled quite a bit um, and saw saw it happening and went, let's, let's get it done. It needs to happen. And how do you go about kind of pulling together 
So if you look at how it is now, it looks like it's a very established thing with these um, kind of beautiful late model uh, Audis and and Volkswagen cars that people can use and uh, big backers and and a very impressive kind of board and and investors and the like. Um, But yeah, how how does one go about putting that together? Because I imagine it wasn't all assured from the beginning in any way. (laughs) No, it it definitely wasn't. Uh, And there was many sleepless nights. you just start asking the questions. So we were having a conversation about why it wasn't happening. What's what's keeping car sharing from launching in, in New Zealand? Um, and so the first thing we realized is you need council regulation um, to support it. So it has to be you know sanctioned effectively. And there's complexities and unknowns and risks with doing anything. I mean, we've seen that with a number of transport examples recently. And so... We worked really closely with Wellington City Council who, you know, they were diligent and they took their time for sure. And I'd be lying if I didn't say I wanted it to go faster. But that being said, they went faster than Auckland, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, you know, so very effectively leaders in the space for our region. Um, And we got car share policy, the first one in New Zealand across the line. so that was a big one. And then later, free-floating car share um, policy, which is the first one in the region. Uh, that was one certainly backing, having a vehicle partnership. And uh, Audi New Zealand has been incredible. And now we're really enjoying working with Volkswagen New Zealand. Um, and the Giltrap group as a whole has been in- incredible to work with. And I've learned a lot from them. Um, the board, as you mentioned as well, we just started saying, well, list laundry list of things we need. Let's go get them done. Technology partners, you know. Um, and in terms of the board and our backers, coming back to that idea that there's, there's these kind of pillar industries that run our, run our society or enable our society, I think, is a, is a much better way to put it. Um, I, I genuinely believe this is, this is where car sharing or mobility is going. Certainly public transport is incredibly important and – we need to double down investment, and I, I believe the mobility space supports public transport, and there's a lot of research to back that belief. Um, but if we think about Air New Zealand as an entity, and we're pretty lucky to have them. They're best in the world. I fly far too often and always offset my carbon. Um, but I really think mobility companies are going to look like an Air New Zealand, but in our cities. You know, we think about Air New Zealand as the airport and the space in between in the air, right? But they're not on Queen Street or on Lambton Quay. Um, And I think a company will look quite similar to that but be part of your daily life. And so with that and and the markets, Wellington alone, if we take the number of people, the average total cost of ownership, which is over $10,000 a year, and we, we put that through, that's a billion dollars a year, just private, not even touching on company cars um, or fleets or anything, or taxis. Um, then we take Auckland, and when you put Auckland Wellington together, that's over $10 billion a year. And so working on a problem that big, you need good, steady, experienced hands who know how to run effectively a utility. And so we went out and found them. And... and uh, just endlessly humbled and grateful to to have them because, gosh, <laughs> we wouldn't be where we are without them. And then and Zed has just taken an incredible leadership. You know, you look at 
how Zed approaches climate change, um, how they work with the climate change leaders um, group and a number of others in their position on, yeah, we, we sell fossil fuel and they directly import a large percentage of our emissions if you think about it. But they're actively working with companies like us, with, you know, they have the biodiesel plant, things like that, which are all going, well, we, our core business is going to change drastically in 10 years. So we can either protect shareholder value and see where the future is going or, or wind it up. And awesome to have that leadership. And what kind of role does a Z play in here? Because I imagine there's two ways that people could look at it. One would be they're moving towards the future um, and and uh, leading change. And the other would be it's good marketing while they're still carrying on doing the things that they currently do business as usual. Are they providing kind of the energy uh, for the cars or, or you know, what's their role there? Yeah, and, and you could definitely take it mm. both ways. And both are in part true. Um Energy, certainly, yeah, we, we purchase that from them and, and Meridian Energy as well um, because they're plug-in hybrids, so we use both forms. Um, more recently, as, as we continue to grow the relationship, we're absolutely delighted to have Julian Hughes, who's their new head of strategy, on our board. That's pretty cool for a pretty early-stage company to have head of strategy for, gosh, their market cap's over $3 billion now. And uh, he's doing that Monday to Friday and then in his extra time because... He's a busy man. He uh, works on Mevo too. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, and if you go by the numbers that we look at, so for every car we put down, international research at least backs, 10 cars are taken off the road. So that's an order of magnitude reduction in vehicles. And we've pledged to go full electric as soon as the market catches up because there's some some range that we need and, and a few other bits, and the price points are still quite high. So I'm really excited to see the, the government making noise about um, EV subsidies coming through. Um, but if you go 10 to 1, that's effectively, give or take, 4, billion, or 4 million cars to 400,000. That's a big impact on, on a company like Zed, mm. and especially when they're going electric. So it to me, seems like pretty good strategy to be yeah, to, to lock in the energy supply to the the thing that's going to well the value down the, the value shifts so the value changes from energy supply to mobility mm. access um, and that's a pretty drastic change as well so having having some brilliant analysts that they've got on their team supporting us as well um, and then the show of support and leadership and, and belief in our vision you know that's that's big. The pressures on the car stock must not just be from car share schemes either. So if you're doing a 10 to 1 uh, removal of supply on the roads, then the pressures of uh, the, the, the last mile mobility solutions like your scooters and mm-hmm. your bikes mm-hmm. uh, and also um, the Uber effect where people um, in many cities are ditching their cars and just uh, making the, the choice to take more Ubers around their public transport mix. So if you think about it, I quite like to use the analogy of building a house in terms of like how people meet all their mobility needs. So if we think about day-to-day getting around in every form, if you were trying to build a house and you just had a hammer, one tool, pretty rubbish house probably. You know, the windows are falling off and, and that's kind of how our cities work. If you're trying to get around and you just have a private car, well, you get... Auckland congestion, really, don't you? So changing that to 
an, a ride hailing, you know, an Uber, an Ola, a Zumi, when, when appropriate, a micromobility. In the U.S., we don't have the stats in New Zealand, but in the U.S., half of, um, half of all journeys can be serviced by an e-bike or an e-scooter. You know, they're, they're capable. It's the right distance, the right time. That means half of the trips don't need a car a ton of metal to deliver a 100 kg payload a person versus 20 kg of scooter, right? So I fundamentally think micromobility is going to be a major, major part of our transport future in cities. Um, but then access to a private vehicle, because there's still, I go tramping on the weekends. I, I grab a car or, you know, I grab a car that's just on my block somewhere and drive it out to the airport and drop it off. So those are all examples of you know, reasons you don't need a car. And then once once you let go of either that second car, if you're a two-car family, or your first car, if you're living, you know, in a place that supports that, like in, in our home zone, which is where you can pick up and drop off cars, well, you're more likely to walk because you don't have the car sitting there and you have to think about paying for whatever mode you're going to take. Or you're more likely to bike or more likely to take a bus. Yeah, so and, it all kind of works together. But it it didn't work up until quite recently, we think, because people didn't have something to fundamentally replace, replace their private car. Yeah. So that big gap meant they had to own it, which means they used it for everything else anyways. And because they were subsidizing it essentially with that $10,000 a year of dead money that goes into owning a car, they weren't even competition. So if you were choosing whether to take a scooter, a bike, a car, or a bus, you've actually already got a $10,000 sunk cost that means that you're always going to prioritize uh, keep keeping doing the most inefficient uh, option, which is bananas. I, I did a similar um, calculation a few years ago and um, replaced my car with a bike and then worked out with the amount of money spent on insurance, registration, servicing, et cetera, et cetera. I could take up to $50 of Ubers a week on mm-hmm. top of riding my bike to work and I'd still be ahead. And as soon as you make um, that call, it suddenly is very easy not to have a vehicle. If you walk out of your house... And you've got a vehicle that, say, in Wellington, a lot of people walk to work every day. And you, you have a vehicle there and you walk past it and it sits in your drive. You walk home and it's still there. Every day you can kind of look at, just imagine it's a $20 note or a $50 note that you get to pick up and put in your pocket. So from build... <laughs> or on the other side, set fire to. <laughs> well, there is that, yeah. And uh, you build that into the, the thought of, of cities that we want to live in. That means more cafes, more galleries, you know, more, call it a faster mortgage pay down, call it another overseas holiday here. It's, it's pretty crazy. And I, I mean, I love, I, I love Auckland and I love watching how it's changing. And, you know, I, I, I note that we're in Morningside in the studio here. And, you know, obviously Morningside's going through a lot of change and there's just great cafes and taverns and really cool stuff going on here. And that all comes from the freed up capital where people are letting go of owning one, two, three cars per household. And, and density and public transport links with a train station a couple of hundred metres away. Absolutely. Like uh, some of the only areas where we do have four to six storey apartments kind of working. Uh, and it feels like we're at the, the beginning of kind of an, an urbanisation in New Zealand that anyone who travels and has lived overseas, uh, you know, will have experienced. But I wonder, like, was that part of choosing Wellington for you? Because Wellington, as you mentioned, lots of people do uh, walk to work. And because of the geography with the hills, it means that you do have 
quite an urban and cosmopolitan city where people act like they're in a city as opposed to Auckland that's had that kind of car and sprawl reliance. Well, I think it's one, I mean, one thing I always like to to talk about is we're not in any stretch of the imagination anti-car. And the car occupies a really important cultural position. And, and it's, I love driving, especially really lovely cars. Um, and getting getting out and engaging in the countryside is, I think, will forever be part of our urban identity as, as New Zealanders. And so that's one thing as people get these these lovely, maintained, beautiful cars to drive. The other thing, though, and, and touching on, on your point, is Wellington was where we were. It's dense. We had great networks. So, you know, I mentioned Julian on our board more recently, but... Uh, Jason McDonald, who was head of commercial for Meridian, as well as sitting on a number of other boards, you know, great connection there. And he led the initial relationship we had with with Meridian. Meg Matthews, who was um, chief executive of World Wearable Arts and previous marketing at Air New Zealand, you know, through our networks in Wellington there. And on top of that, we also had a council that was really on board. Auckland Transport is doing great work with policy. They've got a draft um, free-floating car share policy under review at the moment, so it's coming. Um, but it's a fairly capital-intense exercise. You know, we have um, a lot of new cars, and they're they're not cheap. Um, and we lease them, but someone's money's still at play on that. And uh, to prove the model, you need a network that's functional and has pretty good coverage. And our home zone in Wellington is pretty small; needs to grow a lot, um, but it still covers a lot of the city. So to do the same thing in Auckland would be 5, 10, 20 times the capital investment. So we can prove it out in Wellington, take our learnings, because, you know, like any business, we didn't get it right from day one. We've been improving and improving and improving and learning and growing and, and delivering better and better results month on month. I mean, we've got, for over two years, we've been delivering 20% month on month growth of trips. Just that that number today still blows my mind. It's It's similar growth metrics to Slack, actually. Um, but Wellington was a great scale model, really. And we think the learnings from there will be applied, albeit differently. Auckland certainly will be a different market, but a lot of them will work really well here. So when we come in, the expensive learnings were done in miniature, I guess, and can be applied. And then when we look at, you know, Auckland's a great um, analog for, you know, it's a million-person version of a Sydney, which is five million and a Melbourne, which is 5 million. So when you put those markets together, when you type Brisbane into that, so you've got five markets, that's a $100 billion a year market. And that kind of, uh, the the innovation-friendly environment of the Wellington Council as well, like Auckland uh, is a million miles behind in terms of Parking, there's been an app forever that you can just use an app to be able to park in your car uh, if you've applied for it and gone through the process rather than getting out and bothering with all of the um, the things. Yeah. Hang a thing up in your windscreen to let people know that you're in the right place. Like There's, there's all of these things that Wellington's been open to. I wonder, like, when you look at um, Uber, for example, it had a bunch of different killer apps within its model. And I wonder, you know, those being kind of, you don't have to pay at the end of the journey. You can see the driver coming towards you. You, you don't have to um, 
if you, you, you have the safety and security of knowing who the driver is that's going to pick someone up late at night. So that's been a huge thing for safety for users. You know, they had all these different killer apps all together. What, what would your killer apps be in the service? Because I wonder if one would be that ability to not have to find a certain docking point to drop the car back off, but being able to leave it anywhere in this home zone just seems to me like a, a super kind of like, um, yeah, yeah, killer app for you. So, I mean, first I've got I've to come out for um, the parking team at Auckland Transport. They're actually really innovative. And I, the AT Park app works really well. So, and they've been great to work with leading up to in the policy um, development. But in terms of killer apps and, and what works really well, it's simplicity. It's just being able to, you know, it takes seven seconds to get effectively a keys to a $70,000 asset. You hit reserve. It's waiting for you. I don't know if anyone's gone hunting for a scooter and had it disappear when you're on the way. That's That always really annoys me. Um, and you hit unlock, and your phone buzzes, and the car unlocks. That's it. It's yours. You don't have to bring it back to the same place. You don't have to worry about return times. You know, I mean, to me, it's it's akin to if I said, hey, going to watch a movie after work? Cool. Well, you're going to go by a store. You're running late because you forgot about that report you had to ship. So the movie you wanted to watch is a new release and it's all gone. Sorry. So, And you're going to have to remember to bring it back the next day and you're going to forget. So you get a late fee. That's nuts, right? And booking and return times and things like that. Just for me, I, I live in an on-demand, you know, much more like Netflix. And if you think about Netflix in that, that way as well, they saw a technology curve. They started making their bets early. They had, you know, a significant position when, when it flipped over. And they were sending DVDs out in the mail. And then streaming came on. And they're just miles ahead to this day. And so on-demand, like us, you need a car, just there's one two minutes away from you and it's waiting for you and then having every park in the city every metered coupon p120 park and at the airport i have this moment walking around the city that i it happens pretty often and i really enjoy it where i like i'll see i'll be walking to work or something like that and i'll see someone pull up an amiibo and get out and they don't know who i am thankfully and um i don't feel too much like a stalker and i'll be walking along and they'll get out and lock the car and kind of have this look at the parking meter and the sly kind of grin and then they'll lock the car and just walk past it. And I think that's a really joyous moment when you're like, I don't have to pay for parking. I don't have to do any of the rubbish things that go with owning a car. But when I'm in a car, it feels like mine. It's not sign-written bright colors and things like that. It's low profile. And to me, it's, it's about being better than private ownership. Mm. People shouldn't sacrifice. They should get more. And I don't, I don't know about you, but when I did own a car many years ago, I certainly didn't clean it twice a week. I didn't, you know. So all of those things come in. But getting out of people's way, just making it really simple. That was a really long-winded response. No, that's great. That's great. And, and, and in terms of, like, in advice for yeah, in entrepreneurs or people interested in trying to, to, to take on a big challenge like this, like changing the kind of um, urban driver mix in in a 
major metropolis when there are big, well-funded international competitors trying mm. to do similar things, not not to the same extent with the, the simplicity and the, the tie-in with the councils and stuff, which is really, you know, very cool um, new things, but very seriously kind of funded big o- o- overseas competitors. Like, do people tell you you are bananas to try it? And of like, course. And of what, course they do. And what kind of advice would you have for people who who want to, to, to try to make a dent? I think it's just commitment and really being willing to weather a storm and just keeping at it day in and day out and making sure you've got really good support systems. I, we, I can't speak highly enough of our board. And we've had them pretty much since our first funding came in. And that's just been such a game changer for us. And I don't know that many startups that do that really early and really well. There's some good examples for sure. Um, but just learning and doing the least you can to learn the next lesson you need to learn. I think that's those those would be the key ones. And in terms of success, like what does success look like for you? Oh, tech utopia, um, which is probably less tech, to be perfectly honest. So less cars, less clutter on the streets, less screen time, more time with people you care about, more time doing things you care about, more time, you know, continuing to build an incredible country together as a, as a community. And when that means one-tenth the number of cars, but all of them being much nicer, and hopefully people getting to spend more time out of work because the economy works better, that's great. So a, a big impact. And lots of really cool companies that are doing the same thing in their own way. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with us. That's Eric Zeidevel of Mevo, which uh, everyone in Wellington will know well. And uh, keep an eye out for it in other centres around New Zealand. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Uh, if you are a fan and follower of The Spinoff, make sure you check out The Spinoff Members, uh, a program where you're able to get behind and support and choose and shape the investigative journalism that The Spinoff provides. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.